The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The scripture text for this morning's sermon is Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, the whole chapter. That's Matthew 28, verses 1 through 20. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city, And told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if he comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went into Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. This uh, summer, my extended family gathered out in Pennsylvania to commemorate the lives of my grandparents. My grandfather had just died recently at the age of 98. They were godly people, and my grandfather had built a house on a lake that I have very fond memories of. The house was set on, set on a big hill, and we'd go down to the lake, and my grandfather would teach uh, my brother and I how to fish. Now, I was just a boy, you know, my... I remember right around 10 years old or so learning the ropes of fishing. And I remember my grandfather, 
helping me put bait on the hook and put the bobber on the line. And then he would help me cast the line into the water, which kind of got tangled at times. And I'd stand there on the shore and then just watch the bobber. Now, of course, as soon as the bobber goes up and down in the water, you got to give it a little tug and get the hook in the fish's mouth and so forth. Sometimes I'd get nervous and not pull at the right time. You know, sometimes when I was setting up the hook, I would poke my finger. The worms were always slimy. I didn't like that. The lines would get tangled. Other times I seemed to miss the bobber going up and down. But often, without me even knowing it, my grandfather standing behind me would swoop in at just the time I needed him and would help me sort of land the fish. Now, this story relates to the text that we're going to be looking at today because it talks a little bit about our weakness and Christ's authority, his knowledge of the sort of the, the field in play, so to speak, and his presence. I had, I had um, James read the whole chapter of Matthew 28, but actually we're just going to be focusing, in, focusing on the latter half, verses 11 to 20. Now, it's so familiar that we run the risk of checking out and thinking, well, I've been there, done that. I, I know this text. It's been preached on many times here. But I think you'll find as I have this week in preparing how much the Lord has for us in this text. In fact, Lord, what do you have for me today? This ought to be the question that we ask ourselves every time we gather. We come here to follow him, to learn how to love him more, and this is a process that's spiritual. It's not merely intellectual, is it? So I know this text shouldn't be something we allow ourselves to say because this is about spiritual transformation here today. So let's look expectantly at the text today. Now the structure of the passage is simply this. There are two real snapshots. Verse 11 picks up right when the guards are leaving to go talk to the chief priests about what happened. And the other is, talks about the response of the disciples and then what Jesus says in reply to them. So this passage is in the direct aftermath of the resurrection, and it tells us really of two competing worldviews, two responses to Jesus. You might say two ways to live or two ways to carry yourself. There, aren't, there are those that follow Jesus and those that don't. Of course, those that follow Jesus base their worldview on the historical resurrection. But we mustn't pretend that this text is simply about history. In fact, this text actually shows us that facts aren't, most often are not the main battleground. The main battleground is a spiritual one, not necessarily an intellectual one. One other helpful piece of background information before we dive into the text has to do with when it was written. Matthew was probably written in the 65 to 85 AD range. Now this was right after a whole slew of prominent leaders in the church had just been martyred. Think of people like Peter or Paul. Into this context... Jesus says, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I am with you even to the end of the age. Into this context, where all of these important leaders were now gone, Jesus' words would have read a little bit more like, don't forget, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't forget, I am still with you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. We must remember, and it's my prayer that we remember and practice, work out in our lives, Christ's authority and his presence, his power, his nearness, his sovereignty, his goodness. This was Jesus then, and it's the Jesus we worship here this morning. Let me open in a word of prayer. Lord, We pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold the wonders in your law. We pray, Lord, we cry out for insight, raise our voice for understanding. We search for it as for hidden treasure. This is a work of the Spirit in us, something we can't do on our own. So transform us, make us today, even in these few minutes together, as ones who search for you in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 11, it begins in this way. While they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests. So the angel has just appeared. He's appeared to the, the angels appeared to the women. The guards have seen it. And they passed out in fear. The women then went and and saw Jesus. We don't know if the guards saw Jesus or not. And then both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they left and so did the guards. And the guards, as they were going, thought, we need to tell our boss what happened here. The chief priests, they're going to want to know this. Now, the text doesn't tell us if as they were going, they also thought we need to make up a story here to uh, a lie to try to cover up what happened. It just says they went and told the chief priests what happened. But what these guards absolutely did know is what any guard in the ancient world would have known in a, sim- in a similar situation, and that is they had failed. They didn't do their job. Usually guards in this situation were put to death. So they had an awkward predicament before them. They saw what had happened. They fainted in fear. They knew it was real, but their own necks were on the line. So they had two, you might say, truths that were in tension with one another. Oh my, I saw an angel. And we're in serious trouble here. Pilate's going to have our necks. So what do they do? Well, they choose to save their own skin. They chose to put what happened in the hands of the chief priests in hopes that the chief priests would save. Now we can look at the chief priests. They decide to concoct this huge lie. They made up a falsehood, and then they gave a bribe out to the guards so that they would keep spreading it around. The text tells us it was so effective that it was the dominant lie, or the dominant story, I should say, to cover up the resurrection up until the time of Matthew's writing. 
Now, this makes a very important point to us that we can't miss today, and it's point number one of this sermon. Faith in Christ is first and foremost a spiritual matter, not an intellectual one. What I mean is faith in Christ isn't first or primarily a cognitive thing. It's not first simply a matter of getting the right information. If it was, wouldn't every university religion professor believe in God, believe in Christ as well? They've got all the information. They've got all the research. That's, it's not how it works. Our worldviews and the spiritual war underneath influences the facts, influences what we do with the facts. Not only that, but our worldviews are so powerful that we may, in the face of history and eternity shaping events like this, choose money or choose a bribe. Choose a falsehood that you take to the grave. So belief in Christ isn't primarily about facts. Facts obviously are important. But it's not primarily about that because the facts couldn't be more evident to the guards and probably to the chief priests. So if we, what what the take-home is for us today is if we think that the problem with the world today is primarily an intellectual one, primarily a problem of inaccurate information, even though there's a lot of that out there, well, this is a focus. We're focusing on the wrong thing. The problem with the world today is primarily a spiritual one. And the reason you and I believe in Christ, it's not because we were just smarter than others. It's not because we just happened to stumble across the right set of facts. It's because Christ has opened our blind eyes. You and I believe in Christ because the Spirit has raised our hearts to see the beauty of Christ. So as we approach our neighbors with the gospel, of course, it's a crucial foundation to speak no nonsense about the facts of history. But sometimes it could be even best to take conversations in a different direction or open up with more subjective questions that aren't necessarily dealing with more raw data or facts of history, like, What do you think about the meaning of life? What do you think about your life? And do you feel like your life has significance? Sometimes we begin question, we begin conversations like this, not necessarily with asserting facts, but rather with things that help us see what our neighbors think about spiritual things. As we do this, we can see more clearly just what lie is blinding their eyes. What spiritual lies are they believing? And therefore, how can the gospel meet them in just that place to bring darkness into light? So Christians here today, really, we ought to take this as a massive encouragement. The unbelief of our neighbors, our co-workers, our extended family, it's ultimately a spiritual thing. And you're not responsible to change them. You're just responsible to testify to them about how wonderful Jesus is. 
We see, actually, the angel. The angel's announcement is kind of like a testimony, isn't it? We have two groups of people. The women, who are beside themselves with excitement, and the guards, who faint and then cover it up with a lie. Same testimony, two different responses. So texts like this show us that evangelism, it's really about testifying to the goodness of God in Christ and then seeing what happens. The testimony doesn't even have to be the full gospel all the time. Sometimes it's simply a matter of mentioning the name of the Lord. I'll give you an illustration. Not too long ago, I talked to a non-Christian. We had a long conversation about the Lord. He, interestingly, in this conversation, talked about two believers he knows. He, of course, not a Christian. One was a, a worker that came to do work at his house, and the other was a neighbor of his. And he said, you know, the worker, I know both of these people are Christians. The work, I expect Christians to kind of talk about, talk about their God at times. And the worker that I have come over, she does that. She mentions the name of the Lord. She, she'll ask me questions at times. But sometimes it's just saying, praise the Lord. I expect that out of a Christian. But my neighbor, I've spent so much time around them, and I've never even heard them say the name of Jesus. Isn't that weird? And this is a non-Christian telling me that. Bethlehem, we can feel that testifying to the Lord Jesus is difficult, especially in this day and age. And I will say, I'll be the first to say that I think that evangelism and testifying to Christ is harder in the U.S. than it is abroad. I don't know why. But the outcome in any context we find ourselves has never been about us anyway. It's always been about the Lord who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The battle has never been between two people anyway. It's been in the spiritual realms. And it's why we should pray like crazy for people around us and see what God does. If you're here today and you're exploring what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, know here and now that you are a spiritual being. You're not just a brain walking around uh, assessing facts as they come in. You are fundamentally a spiritual being. And truth be told, no one in this room, as spiritual people, would understand and see God as he is if it weren't for his help. Christ did not only raise from the dead, non-Christian, but he raised, he raised from the dead to raise you from your spiritual death to the life that he has created you for. Jesus is not just right, he is good. He's not just true, he's real. So I encourage you, if you're seeking the Lord today, to pray that the Lord will help you respond like the women in this passage, not like the guards and the chief priests who spent their lives holding up a paper-thin lie. So point one from verses 11 to 15 has been, faith in Jesus is first and foremost a spiritual matter. Now we're going to move it to verses 16 to 20. And I'm going to draw the last two points of this message from these five verses. Point two is Christ is maturing us even through our weakness. The weakness to which I refer here is primarily, of course, a spiritual weakness. And it's among us as a body 
It could be weakness that any of us faces individually, of course, or it could be something we face uh, corporately as a body, as we have in the last few years. Now, I get this point about weakness. Christ matures us even through our weakness from verses 16 and 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. At the beginning of the chapter, the angel told, the angel told Jesus, the angel and Jesus told the women in verses 7 to 10 to go to Galilee. So now the 11 disciples are, have listened and they're going to Galilee. So their feet are going, but some of the disciples' hearts were kind of lagging a bit. It says, the text says, they saw him and worshiped, but some doubted. The original is not all that clear where, where the doubting comes in. Some think that the worshipers also had kind of a layer of doubt mixing into their worship. Others have looked at it and said, no, the, the grammar is a little different. It looks like it's, you've got worshipers over here and then a portion of them that were fundamentally doubting. We don't really know uh, one way or the other, though. And I don't think it actually matters. What matters is that here in this worshiping community, these disciples who are already walking to Galilee in obedience to Jesus, we have doubt mixed in somewhere. Now, this doubt was, of course, experienced personally, but it was also felt as a body. This is how it always is. One's personal struggles become struggles in the whole church. This part of the text actually makes me think a little bit of uh, Thomas in the Gospel of John. Can you imagine how his doubting would have gone over in the group? Now, he wasn't just off in a corner, just sort of stewing in doubt all by himself. Rather, he was among them saying, unless I see, I'm not believing. So the people here in Matthew also persisted in their questions, even as they were seeing the risen Lord. At Bethlehem, we should actually take courage from this as well. We should be a more resolute people when we meditate on what this is actually saying. The church throughout history, going all the way back to the first century, can testify that there has never been a weakness-free or a challenge-free church. There's never been a local church without doubts, without disputes, without trials, opposition, quibbles, anger, division. Today's passage, along with many other in, in Scripture, actually normalize this. They don't turn away from it. They don't act like it's okay, but they normalize it, saying this is part of what life and being a church in a fallen world is. It normalizes these challenges for the average individual Christian as well. But here in the, in, the, in the church, doubts and fears and relational conflict and weariness, they all seem to work and chip away a little bit at our relationships with God, not only as individuals, but also together. This is why, in part, our walk with God is called a fight of faith. So the question really isn't, will challenges exist, but rather, what do we do with them? The long answer to that question takes the whole Bible to answer. 
The New Testament is full of answers with how to deal with these sorts of issues individually and corporately. But the short answer to that question comes in the text right here when Jesus opens his mouth to speak. Jesus says two things that should grab our attention. All authority and he's with us. All authority is his in heaven and on earth and he is with us. That means he has all authority to mend our weak hearts in the end. Jesus' authority and presence, I think, is summarized really nicely in Philippians 1.6. It says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He authoritatively began this work of faith in you, and he is near you and with you, walking you through your weakness until the end. So Jesus, like my grandfather, you could say he's behind you. He's supporting you through the troubles, through the pains, through the uncomfortableness, which surely abate as we begin to know him more and more. This means that weakness among us as a body, as we pass through trials, it's slowly being worked in such a way that we become more and more like him. It's like being, in the words of 1 Peter, burned up like dross. And as the trial burns up our weakness or burns up our lack, lack of sanctification, it leaves pure gold, which results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So what do we do with weakness in us and in our church. Well, we patiently apply the balm of God's word to it as we trust that his work is being slowly but surely completed in us. There's one more point. The first point was faith in Jesus is first and foremost a spiritual matter. Point two was Christ matures us in our weakness. Point three from this text I think the Lord has for us today is Following Christ is working out the authority and presence of Jesus personally and corporately, or individually and as a body. Now, I realize working out the authority and presence of Jesus is kind of funny language, stilted language. I'm obviously taking that from Philippians 2, which tells us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about what working out the authority and presence of Jesus is all about in the latter part of this sermon here, or the latter part of this, this last point. In a nutshell, though, working out means to exercise the very things that Christ said we should among each other and individually related to his authority and presence. It means to practice the very things that remind us, not just cognitively, but remind us spiritually what it means to have an authoritative and present Savior in Jesus. Now, there's two uh, cross-references I want to bring to your attention that I think pretty, pretty uh, insightfully tell us what, how the Lord's authority and presence work in us as individuals, and in us as a body. And the first is Matthew 18, 15 to 20. I'll read it for you. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won over your brother. But if he will not listen, 
take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would even a, pax, a, a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whoever, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two or three of you agree about anything, it will be done for you. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. So what you have is it's the, this little passage that I'm bringing into today's text starts off with two individuals in conflict. Now we have individuals that have issues and now they try to hash those issues out. It becomes a church matter. As the passage goes on, the, the matter escalates and turns into a full-scale issue of church discipline. But verse 18 specifically mentions having the mandate of the Lord when, we, when it talks about binding and loosing. This refers to the Lord and the Lord's authority among us as a church. And in the end, it's really interesting how Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. The presence of the Lord is here. Both in little interpersonal squabbles and in huge, difficult, tangled disciplinary matters, the Lord is both authoritative and he's present. One other quick cross-reference comes from Colossians 3, 15 and 16, which Kenny quoted earlier. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Christ's authority. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Combine, this combines the, the authority in the rule of God and the presence as he dwells among us. So in a nutshell, authority says... In the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, this situation can change because the Lord is the authority over it. And if God wills, I can be an agent of change here. Presence says, in the name and by the power of Jesus, I can be a spiritual encouragement in this situation. I can be the Lord Jesus' presence with this person in this situation. So in today's text, in Matthew 28, Jesus declares his authority and presence in the Great Commission. But have you noticed how much of the Great Commission involves the life of the church? It's only making disciples that, kind of, that happens in, among non-Christians. And even that, you know, it's, it's partly sort of, uh, it's a little bit sort of in, in both contexts. Baptizing and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded? Well, that takes place predominantly in the body of Christ. Baptisms like those a few weeks, a few weeks ago with Wendy and Rob, Dawit and Abraham and Laurel, well, this is church life, and it's the fulfillment of the Great Commission. So you might say that the authority and presence of Christ are needed and lived out every bit as much in among us as a church as as it's needed outside of the church as we take the gospel to all nations. His authority and presence are clearly seen in here and out there. So we don't look first to circumstances and say, what on earth is going on? I've said that a lot lately. 
And this text has checked me. What on earth is going on in America these days? But in rather, I say, Lord, what are you doing? How are you working to sanctify your people through this? As we look to, to the one who has authority over the circumstances and has promised to be with us in them, we say, Lord, show me your work. Show me where you're at work, and I would love to join in. Lord, show me what good deeds you have prepared for me that I might walk in them. So, Lord, show us. Many times we engage people in discussions about spiritual matters, and we should say, Lord, show me. When we have hard conversations with brothers or sisters, we could say, we could remember all authority, even over this conversation, and he's with me. When we encourage one another inside the church and build each other up, all authority, the Lord can do this, not my, own, not my words, the Lord can. When we share the gospel, all authority, he's with us as we do it. When others slander us or m- misunderstand, and even as we follow the Lord, we can say, Lord, all authority has been given to you, and you're with me. So you see, we should really take heart here as we ponder in our hearts what it means that all authority has been given to Christ and he's with us. What do you think is going on in your life? What do you think he is doing in you? What do you think he, he, what good works does he want you to walk in? Well, I don't know a lot of the answers to those questions, but there is one thing I do know. When we really ponder this, when the Lord helps us to work this out in our lives, One thing I know that's going to happen is we will pray more as a church and as individuals. Why? Because all authority and his all-encompassing presence are so pervasive, it can't help but to have us pray more, to to ask the Lord, open my eyes so I can see all of the ways I'm not seeing right now that you're in authority here, that you're present with me. This opening of our eyes is what I've really called working out his authority and presence. It's an exercise of the heart to see him at work and as he's with you and enables you to take part in what he's doing. Another way of saying it is, if we're looking at him, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, as in a glass darkly, and then we will see him face to face, well, that's really the road of sanctification, isn't it? And you might say that From in a glass darkly to face to face, it's just a process by which the Holy Spirit is sort of cleaning the windows so we could see him more and more clearly until we see him with absolute crystal clarity. I opened today's sermon with the illustration about my grandfather and him helping me go fishing at the lake. One thing I didn't mention at the beginning was there were times where, many times actually, where I would forget he was behind me. Didn't matter how much he'd helped me with hooks or worms or, or whatever, he would, he, I would be so focused on what I was doing that I'd totally forget it. And actually, when he would reach around me and grab the rod and help me, it would scare me a little bit or startle me at least. It's my hope that us, that we as a church that we'd become increasingly aware of the presence and the authority of the Lord who is with us and not be surprised.
not be so focused on our lives or what we're doing, what we think he wants us to do, that we forget to remember him. This increasing awareness of his grace to us is what will end up bringing us closer to him. And, and it's, it's what we're going to be talking over the next, about over the next, the coming weeks when we talk about the grace of the Lord working in and out of our lives the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. In today's text, we ask the Lord to open our eyes to his authority and presence. The belief that, that belief in Christ is, is a spiritual matter, ultimately, he's in control over it. That difficulty in the body is normal and that we should take it in stride as we look to him and that we today can follow the authoritative and present Lord Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a group, as a body, as we carry out the Great Commission. And as we would, as we do, we pray, we ought to pray that he will help us be more expectant of what he's doing, not as a child that forgets that help is near, but rather as someone who knows that the authority and help are both here, even if we don't know how it's going to come. So Bethlehem, let's pray in that way. Let's expect to see him work among us as a people, um, as our near and authoritative Lord Jesus, who's with us even until the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, that work that I just described there, it's entirely of you. We can't do it. We can't produce spiritual change in ourselves, but you can. And you say in 1 Thessalonians 1 that there was such evidence of change there because the word came in power and in the Holy Spirit and in deep conviction. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come in power by the power of your Holy Spirit and bring about deep conviction among us as a church. Help us to understand, digest, and work out in our lives in a new way your authority over all things and your presence and nearness to us, both as a church and as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.